Well, good morning. Uh, good to be with you. And uh, we were away last week. Uh, our youngest son finished a master's program. We were away for the commencement of that. Glad to say, not only are they all off the payroll, but uh, for the first time in probably 25 years, we don't have someone in school right now, which is, uh, which is a good thing. So anyway, welcome to those joining us uh, at the O1. Welcome to those joining us at Crossroads in Highland Park. Um, so imagine this scenario. A prominent national leader has an affair. Married man, he has an affair, and there are some implications. There are consequences. There are, there are, uh, there are complications that evolve because of this. And so uh, lies are told. And friends and uh, members of this person's administration are expected to be loyal and to, to, to reiterate the story, and the lie goes on. And for a while, it appears as though it may go away. But then something flares up, and, um, and an independent agent is commissioned to go in and investigate. And this independent agent has more information and asks a series of questions of the leader and traps them. What happens next? Does the leader uh, double down on the lies? Is hush money paid? Is there a, a series of painful exchanges in which words like is get parsed and redefined? Is there uh, a statement that is made that says, look, none of this affects my ability to do my job and I intend to continue doing the job that I was elected or commissioned to do? Or does the person confess and publicly confess and so publicly confess that they actually publish their prayerful confession, and the country is so moved that they publish this confession as a song that becomes one of their most prominent national songs. Now, uh, I'm obviously mixing a lot of history. It's not hard to imagine a prominent leader having an affair. These kinds of things happen quite frequently. What is sort of hard to imagine is the scenario which we find in Psalm 1, or excuse me, Psalm 51, which is one of the most popular of the Psalms. It is one of the seven penitential Psalms. That is a Psalm that opens with someone in a very bad situation, very desperate, very broken, and ends with them having sort of cycled through confession and, and a sense of hope and restoration. If you're not familiar with the story, it's told in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. David, King David, uh, was, um, was at home. His troops had gone to war. Arguably, he should be there with them, but he's not. One night, he goes out onto the balcony of the palace. He looks down, and in a home beneath him, he sees a woman who is bathing. 
Uh, her name is Bathsheba. She is married to Uriah, who is one of David's prominent fighters who is away at battle. Whether the first glance that David has at Bathsheba is innocent or not, the second one is not, nor is the call for, for him to send troops and people down, staff down to get Bathsheba, have her come back to his room. He sleeps with her. He sends her away in the morning. Uh, no one is supposedly any the wiser, including Uriah, who's off fighting the battle. But some time goes by, and then Bathsheba sends a note to David saying that she's pregnant. Uriah is still at battle. This is a problem. So the cover-up ensues, and uh, there's a series of efforts to try and hide what has happened. They ultimately do not uh, work, and so uh, David orders the murder of Uriah, and after Uriah is killed, he takes Bathsheba as his wife. And again, it looks as though this cover-up is going to work. And then Nathan, a prophet, is sent in by God and confronts David. And David sort of walks into this trap, and then finally he is caught, he is exposed. And it's at this point that, again, you would expect that he would lie or that he would, uh, he would uh, punish Nathan or any one of a number of things might happen. But in fact, what does happen is that we get this very public confession, Psalm 51. Now, so you know, there are lots of implications for Psalm 51. It's, it's worth just again commenting that the Bible is a book full of scoundrels, uh, including the heroes such as David, a man after God's own heart, or Abraham, or Moses, or Peter. Pick whoever you want to pick. They're all sort of exposed for being people who lie and who cheat and, and who murder, and all kinds of bad things happen, except Jesus, right? I mean, if, 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 if the Bible was like most religious books, uh, it's not just the, the, the religious leader himself, but all the people around them would be seen to be good and pristine and honest and kind, and Jesus would just be another one of them. But no, the Bible tells real stories about real people. It's also worth noting that the Bible has real, honest, sometimes shockingly scandalous prayers in it. Many people pray in much the same way that they go to church. Let's put on our happy face and pretend like life is working and ask the kids to behave and clean up our language and all those things. Uh, the, the prayers we find in the Bible are real and raw and shocking and honest and they're full of doubt and anger and scandal and what else. So there's a lot of things that we could uh, look at here conceptually. I want to walk through a few of the key uh, passages in this and have us think about how shocking this is and the counsel that we get from this psalm. So, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. <clears throat> the psalm opens with the request that quite honestly, the person making the request has no right to make. I mean, we just have to acknowledge. Have mercy on me. You can't, you can't demand mercy or grace. And, and David 
is very guilty, but he is asking for God's favor, and, it, and he asks it in much the same way that the prodigal son will ask for favor from his father. And it's, it's language that, it, on the one hand, seems very humble and broken. On the other hand, reflects our desire to just sort of get everything we can, even when we're being humble. So the prodigal son doesn't say, say, Mr. Smith, uh, I wronged you. I need to be treated like a servant. He says, Father, I'm your son and I wronged you. And I deserve father to be treated like a servant. He's, he's reminding, he's reminding his father of the relationship. And David uses covenant language here, covenant terms, has said in Hebrew, he's like, you know, I, he is appealing to the covenant relationship that, that he has, that he recognizes with God the Father. And it's, and it's a, it's a great example of the tension we live under because when we get it, we have no right to come before God and to ask for forgiveness and to ask for favor and to ask for mercy. I mean, if we, if we understand who we are and what we've done, this is, this is crazy that we, would, that we would just burst into the throne room of God and say, hey, I'm, I'm looking for favor here, uh, and I'm going to use all the contractual terms that we have used but that's, that, is the, that is part of the, 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 the wonder of the gospel. Right? We have no right, and yet we are instructed to do just that, to appeal to God and, and his relationship and his promises to us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. So let me just, again, double down here on how shockingly surprising and unthinkable this psalm is in this book, <laughs> okay? Because you, you would not expect David to own up to his sin. He's the king. He's not even president. He's not even prime minister. He is king in a theocracy. He has been appointed by God. And, and there's a sense in which the, the other branches of government report to him. And he's a war hero. And, I mean, he's, he's got job security that nobody has. And you would expect him to just sort of say, okay, well, yeah, um, deal with this. I mean, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying people with a lot less power take whatever they want and brush it aside. So it's shocking that David will humble himself. It's additional, additionally shocking that Nathan will go in and confront him. Because <laughs> Nathan has no army. Nathan has no official power. You would expect Nathan is going to get, Nathan's got to think, I'm going to be killed. You, 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 you never wanted to be the prophet, Right? There's three offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. Yeah, you wanted to be king. If you couldn't be king, priest was okay. Nobody wanted to be the prophet because you got no friends and you're always pointing out things that people don't want to have pointed out to them. And so, you know, it's a short life expectancy of a prophet. And, 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 and here he is, he goes in and he confronts 
David. It's shocking that he confronted him. It's shocking <laughs> that, that the Jews then published this in their book. This isn't like the New York Times investigative reporter hoping to get a Pulitzer Prize doing undercover work, right? This is, this is the official document of, of the Jews. They're publishing this horrific scandal involving involving their key leader. So um, it's shocking for all kinds of reasons. I'm not saying that it's, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying we would expect it to be covered up. We would expect there to be some comment about, please respect the privacy of, of, uh, of the king, and this is a family matter, and, and none of, no one has any reason um, to be aware of what's going on. But that isn't what we get. And and if we are paying attention, I think there are, there are three key takeaways for us out of this today. First of all, it's important that we call sin, sin. It's not popular. Uh, the term has fallen out of favor for at least 50 years. And, uh, and, and what we hear are, are people making excuses. We don't talk about adultery as a sin. It's a private matter between consenting adults. Uh, if we're going to say something was a sin, it's usually talked about as a momentary lapse of judgment. Uh, and, or it's just it's nobody's business. Right? And, and how dare you imply this moral standard? And yet, in this psalm, three different Hebrew words are used to, to define sin. One of them talks about uh, uh, taking on a debt in front of God. One of them talks about personal wickedness. And the third term that is used refers to guilt. And it's guilt that set uh, Freud off, right? I mean, so Freud would argue that... Uh, that, that the reason we feel guilt is because of this heavy-handed um, sort of oppressive system that is forced down upon us. These, these, these definitions, these social constructs that get forced upon us by our family in part, but mostly by the church, and imply uh, that we must conform. We've got to we've got to agree on somehow that we're going to tame our wild id, right? Remember id and ego and superego. We've got to tame our wild id, and so there's these rules that get forced on us. And if we buy these rules, if we accept these rules, then we are going to live as repressed people, and we're going to have wild dreams, and we're going to have Freudian slips, and all kinds of stuff is going to happen. And eventually, if we don't sort of make peace with this, then we, it leads towards uh, a neurosis, right? We're, gonna, we're going to we're going to be mentally ill if we don't break free of these social constructs that get forced upon us. So let me just note, guilt is a tricky topic. Uh, subje- uh, feelings of guilt is, are, are tricky because some people feel guilt when they shouldn't. Other people don't feel guilt when they should. And, and it's, it, it, we need each other to sort of figure out some of this stuff in terms of our own life. But, but I, I don't want to lose our way here. Um, David is quite clear that he is guilty. And he calls sin, sin. 
And it's imperative that we learn to call sin, sin, in part because if it's sin, (laughs) there's a solution for that, okay? If this is the way your parents messed you up, then you might just have to live with that. Uh, if, this is, if this is just feelings that you have, then you might have to live with that. If it's sin, then Jesus will take care of sin. So it's important that we call sin, sin. But it's also important that we recognize all the forces against us doing that. I remember, this is decades ago, I was a college pastor and the college ministry leaders for, there's four or five different groups. We were called in by the, uh, one of the associate deans. And there was some, some issue. It didn't involve our particular camp, the ministry I was involved with. But um, there was, we were all in there and we were sort of getting scolded for certain things that had been done or said. And it, it led into a very predictable conversations that we would have every year in which uh, the, the argument was made that, that as campus ministers, we had to understand the need to be neutral. We had to be neutral. And in this particular situation, a, uh, a student had gone to a, see a counselor, and the counselor, it, the counseling relationship somehow wasn't working, and the student was asking for a Christian counselor. And the, the university, a, a, a state school, was obviously, they didn't know what to do with this, right? They, they had a student asking for a Christian counselor. And they were, so I remember being asked, they go, so what is a Christian counselor? Like, how does that even work? And I said, well, so a Christian counselor would, would be looking at all the tools of counseling and therapy as well. But there is a worldview that is assumed. We all have one. You have one, I have one, and the Christian worldview would say that perhaps the reason that this student is struggling with guilt and shame is because she's guilty, (laughs) and she needs forgiveness. And the associate dean said, okay, you can't impose your views, you have to be neutral, And that led to the conversation that we always had, which is, okay, you claiming to be neutral is not a neutral claim. You understand you're forcing your worldview on me, and you say that you're being neutral. You're not being neutral. This is a very new thought that you are trying to interject. And so that's where we spent the next 10 years trying to resolve that one, always with the university saying, you must be neutral. And me saying, there is no such thing as neutrality, but whatever. The point being, Sin was called sin by David. He said, I am guilty. I have committed a sin. And and we've got to get to that point in order to get on the other side of it. And it's important, and this is the second point, it's important that we understand the condition that the Bible says we are in. Sin is not an act. It's not, it's not described as a, so much as a failure to act either. Sin is a condition of brokenness that we have inherited because we have fallen short of the glory of God. And we are born broken. 
that there is a rebellion that is going on, and we have to understand we're not starting in a neutral place. We're starting broken. And this, this, is, um, this is crazy talk, but, but David says it here in verse 5. He said, in sin did my mother conceive me. And this does not have anything to do with the fact that, that, uh, that sex is sinful. Marital love is celebrated. This is not going there. It, David is recognizing that we're not called sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is a condition of brokenness that runs that deep. And you'll notice as people uh, throughout time discover this and write about this, there's always some sort of shocking comments that, that get made. For instance, uh, one of them we see with, uh, with, uh, in, in the book Confessions by Augustine. So Augustine talks about uh, stealing pears from, from uh, a, neighbor, a, a neighborhood farm. And he says that when he looked at it, he realized how shocking it was because he didn't even want the pears. He said, I, I realized I am stealing these pears without having any reason to do so because I have no, they, they were not good pears and I did not, I wasn't, I wasn't hungry. He said, I realized, unreflecting on that, that I just wanted to rebel. I just wanted to be in charge. I did not want to have to try and appease anyone but myself. C.S. Lewis writes about this. He said, um, he says, when I finally got around to examining my own heart, what I discovered was, was a zoo of lusts, uh, uh, this bedlam of anger, right? This, 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 this inner state of turmoil that was going on in my heart. He goes, it was shocking to me because I had not ever seen it before. And so I, I want to say we need to understand that, that people will come slowly to this understanding that the problems that I have run so much deeper than I ever imagined. And I need help. I, I can't... I can't simply try harder and be good. What we get with David is not, not asking for another chance. What we get for David is not resolve that he's going to try harder to be good. What we get from David is, is this understanding, I am broken at a very profound level, and I need God's mercy and grace. That's the only way forward. So, it's important that we understand exactly our condition. The problem we face is sin, and the sin runs deep. And that leads to the, to the third and, and final point that I want to make, and that is that what we need to do is we need to repent. And that means that we need to acknowledge as much. We need to own this. We need to stop blaming anyone else, any circumstances, anything else, and say, inside I've got issues, and I need help on these issues. Now, there are lots of reasons for repentance. First of all, it just reflects reality. Secondly, it's very attractive to be around somebody who will repent. I'm not talking about somebody who is 
morbidly self-consumed with shame. That's not what we're called to. Humility is not somebody going around talking about how bad they are. When, when you're being humble, it's not that you're, that you're constantly reflecting on how bad you are. You just stop reflecting on yourself. It's, it's, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And, and it's very attractive to be around somebody who, who is, who's just dropped that guard. I, I had a friend who was on staff at a campus ministry at Harvard... When Billy Graham came and he spoke uh, at the law school, my friend was there and he said that Dr. Graham gave this initial presentation uh, and then, uh, then it opened it up for Q&A. And he said, the room was hostile. And as soon as he finished his prepared remarks, one of the students jumped up and said, Dr. Graham, your organization is full of hypocrisy. You held segregated uh, crusades in the South in the, in the 60s. And how dare you do that? How dare you come forward? How dare you claim to be a man of God? All these things. And my friend said, uh, he's like, oh, oh boy, here we go. And he said, Dr. Graham did something amazing. He said, you're absolutely right. And he says, that's not even the worst of it. He goes, I did other things that are worse than that. And he says, there's no justification for it. All I can do is say, I was wrong. I have apologized wherever I could. I want to apologize for you. Please forgive me. And he said it just completely changed the dynamics in the room. So uh, I want to say repenting is, repenting is, uh, makes us attractive. Repenting, (laughs) think about this. Repenting makes life easier because you got no secrets to hide. When, when somebody accuses you of something and you say, oh yeah, no, I've, I've already talked about that. As a matter of fact, it's worse than that. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not claiming to be good. I'm claiming to be broken. Right? There's, no, there's no ability to blackmail somebody who is us. Now, I'm not saying we've got to tell all our private sins to everybody. Right? There, there are places in which we have these relationships. But repentance leads to a life it's full of joy. And repentance is also, as I've already said, it's a way forward. If we confess our sins, when we repent, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There's a way forward. If you're going to hold on to the fact that you have been wronged by your parents or by the system or by something else, however true all of that may be, right? That, that's stuff that you hold on to. When you own it and say, I have not been who I could be or should be, then there is a way forward. I want to I pull this together by talking about the, the brilliant way C.S. Lewis describes repentance in the Chronicles of Narnia, in particular in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So this is a, a series of, of quote-unquote children's books that are theologically very profound, and um, in, a particular, in this particular book, um, he has, uh, a, introduces a character named Eustace. He says, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Um, this, by the way, is quite a line from someone bo- named Clive Staples Lewis. You can, you can imagine that there were some issues he was processing about that. But Eustace um, Clarence Scrub was a remarkably unlikable boy. He was, uh, he was a jerk. 
He was uh, self-centered. He was narrow-minded. No one could stand to be around Eustace. And uh, in this remarkable literary development, Lewis has Eustace turn into a dragon, right? So he sort of becomes what he is, this very ugly, loathsome, uh, self-centered, mean person. And because he's become a dragon, he is forced to recognize that he's a dragon. And, um, and once he recognizes that he's a dragon, he realizes what a jerk he's been. He wants to stop being a dragon. And on three occasions, he rips his dragon skin off. But it keeps growing back. And then... Um, he, he can't get down to the boy skin, so finally he has to go to Aslan, the Christ character in this, the lion, the Christ character. And uh, he describes this, and I've, I've got this written out here. He describes all of this, and it's remarkable because it's one of the only places in the Chronicles of Narnia where Lewis has a first-person expression of what's going on. So Eustace is now reporting back to Edmund, one of his cousin, and talking about what happened. He's talking about the undragoning that he went through. And, uh, and Edmund, of course, is very interested in this because Edmund had been a traitor, and so Edmund was interested in the whole process of repentance as well. So let me read to you uh, out of um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader this scene. Eustace says, Then the lion said, but I don't actually know if he spoke, but he said, You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like billy-o, but... It is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled off the beastly stuff, just as I thought I'd done myself three other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't much like that, for I was very tender underneath, underneath now that all the skin had been peeled away. And he threw me into the water. So obviously, symbolism of baptism. He threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned back into a boy. Well, there is so much more that could be or should be said about repentance. Let me note that there is a first time. And a first time repentance is really the same thing as coming to faith. It's owning that the sin goes deeper than I can fix. And I need help. I need a Savior. I need to be forgiven. I need God's mercy. And I am going to come completely clean and confess that that's how desperately broken that I am and that I am turning to Christ to be that. 
A second thing we need to understand about repentance is that it's never a one-time event. And so in the Chronicles of Narnia and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lewis will say that after that undragoning experience, that Clarence became a very likable boy. Not perfect. He had times when he went back to being his old self. But they didn't stay long, and he, he got better, and he became friends with the other boys. Martin Luther will write and say, all of life is repentance. Right? I mean, it's just an ongoing process in which we are constantly on an ongoing basis reflecting how broken we are and how much we need a Savior. I want to be clear that repenting is not at all about lowering the bar and saying, I'm not guilty because I'm going to get rid of the standards that I don't like. Additionally, repentance is not about saying, I'm going to get better. I'm going to try harder, whatever that means. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to start to do this. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to, whatever it means. That's not repentance. If you leave here thinking, okay, I got my pep talk. I'm motivated. I'm going to go out and be nice. You completely are missing the point. You cannot pull it off. Repentance is saying, I am a sinner. <laughs> and there are, there are specific instances of my sin. And then there's just the broad general category. And I need a Savior. And it's resting in the gospel and saying, I, I have repented and I am now in that incredibly sweet spot of knowing that the worst about me is known because I reported it myself. And I'm still loved. I'm fully known and fully loved. That's the mystery of the gospel. Not because I'm good. I've already said I'm not. But because that's who God is. And David is showing us that that's the way forward. That's the way to freedom. Is to, is to agreeing with God that we're broken. And that what we need, most of all, is his amazing mercy and grace. So let me close by reading again some of this psalm for you as your prayer, as my prayer. And then uh, the, the worship team is going to come and they're going to play this um, for all of us at, at all the campuses. They're going to play this psalm again. And we're not asking you to sing. We're just asking you to continue in a spirit of reflection and repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, then I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have bo broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Lord God, we continue to pray and to ask for your mercy and your grace, 
We lean into your forgiveness. Help us to see ourselves and to do so from a position of being unguarded, from recognizing that we want uh, a clear vision and we we don't want to hide things. We want to know the sweet joy of being fully known and fully loved. Guide us as we continue in this attitude of reflection and repentance. Amen.